Hello and welcome to Red Femme. My name is Jen and I'm here with Hannah. Hello everyone. So on today's show we're going to get into our most requested topic which is basically what the hell has gone wrong with the left. This will be part one because unless we were here for about 12 hours we can't cover all bases. No. So I'm going to start by setting the scene and describing for those who don't know or those who wish to remember what the left was like really only 10, 15 years ago and how different it was and how about actual politics it was. And it was not concerned with what people's views were about X, Y and Z. And there was certainly no pretense that queer politics or that transgenderism were radical or good things. So... I'll go back to when I first got into socialism. I was still a teenager and very slowly kind of going through kind of supporting, I was never a member, but supporting a reformist party called Respect. Uh, Hannah, have you heard of them? Have you heard of Respect? Only through you. Okay, well, there you go. It didn't reach other quarters of the world. But Respect was a party that was born out of the Stop the War movement. I heard of Stop the War. Right. Yeah, and we had Stop War. Okay. Yeah. You heard of that? <laughs> <laughs> we had stopwar.ca, which did not end well. Okay. Well, anyway, respect was, I think each of the letters stood for things. I, I'm going to look up what it stood for, but I remember that the S stood for socialism and controversially. You know who has the best one of these? Of these acronyms is um, Party for Socialism and Liberation have a front group mm-hmm. for their anti war coalition. It's called Answer. And it's. Um, Alliance to to say no to war and end racism. Okay. Answer. No, where's the S? Hi. Anyway, it's a very good acronym. If someone can remind me what answer stands for, I was just very impressed. You know, I can't even find it. This is anyway, but, but the idea was R was like respect, E was education, S was socialism, and George Galloway didn't want that in. Yeah. He wanted it to be like strength or something i don't know but he didn't want it to be socialism but the socialist workers party that was the group i eventually joined as i became more far left they did and they won out i believe anyway i remember thinking oh i should really support respect because none of the other political parties seem to take seriously the anti-war movement and things like free education and it was kind of that simple for me um as a young person at university And the people on campus who were serious and wanted to talk about ideas and really just kind of um, this thing of being like, well, you know, the X person, let's say, is uh, quite a centrist liberal at the moment, but they really care about housing. They would work with that person on the basis of, say, housing rights. And there was the idea that people could change their ideas, become more radical there was never any of this kind of cynicism or writing people off or branding somebody um, that didn't agree with you as an enemy. And I remember thinking, oh, these are the people that are serious. And then I kind of learned that they were socialists and a lot of them were in the Socialist Workers Party. And I, yeah, I remember thinking, okay, so this is what happens. Uh, oh, these are the people who are not careerists in politics. They really believe in changing the world and they actually set about to do it, and they're willing to work with people on a shared basis and so on. And I just was so impressed by it. 
and so like relieved to be able to talk about ideas in a serious way with my peers and to really think about politics and think beyond, say, just the car park of my university. All of these awful tendencies that exist on the left now, like cancelling people, monitoring people's thoughts, accusing people of wrong think, they just didn't exist then at all. At least they certainly didn't exist where I was. I never saw anybody doing this. And if they had, they just would have been called punitive. And there was always this idea of just working with the most amount of people possible, a really broad basis. And it was really productive. And I don't want to romanticise it and pretend it was all rosy. Of course, there were divisions, but it was nothing like now. I mean, the left seems to have cannibalised itself and just, you know, eaten everyone alive. It wasn't like that. Problems could be overcome and it just wasn't beset by a myriad of problems or beset by purity politics in the way that exists now. And at the time, honestly, you, you didn't get any... Um, cookies, any virtue cookies at all for being an activist. You were just considered a member of the great unwashed, really. people. I remember someone saying to me when I said that I supported respect, they were like, and I was in student respect, they were like, what? You're in student respect? And I was like, why? Do I seem like I'm against education and equality? E is, <laughs> the other E stands for equality. And they were like, uh, uh, no, but you're just, um, you know, cooler than that. And I remember thinking like, oh, so you just think that like activists or left-wingers are not people who go out clubbing or aren't doing the other things I used to do, like captaining the basketball team and running the film society. And and as if basically, if you were into politics, you were a weirdo. That was how it was regarded. We were the only people on campus that would do things like support Black History Month other than, say, the Afro-Caribbean Society. We were the ones that would say, yeah, great, LGBT History Month, other than the LGBT site, which at the time was LGV, <laughs> no T yet. Um, I, I remember those days and you were kind of just, yeah, either liked or just like sus- people were a bit suspicious as like why you were stood on a stall every lunchtime trying to talk to people and sell them a newspaper or which I was always terrible at and just didn't bother. Oh my bother. god, I hated it. I hate leafleting. I mean, Wait, don't... leafleting's different to selling a newspaper though. We gave our newspaper away for free, but it was it was similar and I I'll do it. I'll do it because you know, it's important sometimes to do. But fuck, I I, I don't mind it that much once someone told me it's just about having the right like if you have a really good conversation with someone and then you can get them involved with things. So there would be this tactic that was having people sign petitions. The petitions they either sent off to the council or they were put in the bin. I don't know where they went after the petitions oh, yeah. went back yeah, centrally. Yeah. Same thing. It was just about getting people's information. <laughs> oh, no, it, it wasn't even about people's information to us. It was about having a conversation and then seeing if you basically you met someone whose you know, ideas chimed with ours and we could... There was this idea of recruitment and then developing people. There was never any of this stuff of writing anyone off for saying the wrong thing or thinking the wrong thing. In fact, there was, I would say, an overemphasis on this idea that you could radicalise anybody. Yeah. Almost, right? I mean, this was a Trotskyist organisation, the SUV. So I was around Respect. And then I think at the end of my university life, I became convinced to join the Socialist Works Party because they just seemed like not just the only game in town, but a game, the people who were honest, sincere, and genuinely wanted a better world. 
and they it wasn't because they sacrificed though a lot of people did um unfortunately and we'll talk about that more um you know the split that happened in that organization and its decline really fucked up a lot of my friends and cost them dearly thankfully i didn't sacrifice anything um <laughs> but yeah i i just remember thinking like oh, okay so these are the, these are the serious people and they really did have a lot of clout they intervened um very well um in unions uh in kind of struggles and strikes and i just thought Okay, I couldn't find disagreements with them. I wasn't interested in debating what happened in Russia in 1954 or, you know, what was happening in 1932 or, you know, whatever. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, and I remember at that time this idea of being an activist was not like it is now where it's performed on the internet or it was performed at all because it was just, it was actually something that I remember uh, the organiser of the SWP saying to me, well, you know, you've only been elected in the union because of us because uh, she was trying to twist my arm into doing something I didn't want to do. It was probably to wake up in the morning and go to a stall to sell newspapers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, particular thing, I remember what it was. And I just said, no, I've been elected in spite of being in the SWP. It's true. Mm. It was actually because I also seemed like a normal person on campus, but not just a kind of um, robot like a lot of them would What's, seem that was the downside wasn't it what was the developing a robot yes a roboticness on kind of um lack of personality yeah i remember i would talk to people in the organization i was in and i would be like oh like how's your family what have you been doing for fun what's been going on and um they wouldn't have an answer yeah it would just be yeah. Like face looked at you like you asked them. People would neglect their personal lives, but also just like I remember speaking to a guy who's from Belgium. A really, really nice guy, by the way. Um I think I've mentioned him before, but anyway. And we went postering for two, three hours, and he didn't ask me a single question about myself. Yeah. I just kept asking him. And I always said to him, Oh, so you know what kind what's your favorite uh Belgium food? Right, you know, and he went, you know, traditionally in Belgium we eat. I was like, no, no, no. I don't want to know what is traditionally eaten. I want to know about you. I want to know about you. But there was, it was like a merging between like individual and these wider structures. And it was very hard then to actually like the person I, be I, there anymore. I think it's a really, it, it can be a problem. And people who grew up in the USSR describe some really? things with party members that I've spoken to, yeah. 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 It's a, it is a problem. And that's also why then when splits happen, people can't leave because then they'd have nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and they know that. But I just have to set, reiterate how different the far left was. I was told, and I, didn't, I couldn't go in the end because someone else had just been elected, but I was told to go to NUS LGBT conference and make um, a speech against queer politics. And we would always, my friend, you know, Hanif did it. He wrote an article against the, um, in opposition to the NUS LGBT officer. I remember his name, actually. Anyway, some guy. He wrote a thing saying, like, you're against queer politics. This was the norm. And it's not that anyone, I think there was one uh, transsexual who worked, in fact, in the SWP office. No one made anything of it. But neither was this person splashed on the front of the newspaper as the vanguard, as they would be today. 
Yeah, I think Canada is like 10 years ahead because I didn't... I know the people who were around the anti-war movement, like the anti-Iraq war movement, I think that was a, a an event that really radicalized a lot of people to the far left was the... Yeah, the anti-war movement. Um, and that seemed to be a time where there was kind of a mass mobilization. But Canada was really on the forefront, certainly of transgenderism. The Transgender Studies Department of the University of Victoria was the incubator for a lot of the ideas we're seeing now. Um, but also identity politics in general were a huge, huge thing. As far as I can remember, I think we were just really, like, Canada stopped allowing lesbian-only bars, like, in the 1990s. Yeah, that's what I'm told, that the last time that would really have happened. So so I was speaking to a friend who's from Vancouver, and I said how, when I would go to the candy bar in, like, 2007, 2008, you weren't really allowed to bring a male friend unless maybe there was, like, five women and he was, you know, there was a guy and they thought maybe he was gay. So if there was two men, you'd have to bring a big group of women and get the men to hold hands. And there was always this thing that they really wanted it to be a overwhelmingly female-dominated space. And they didn't really like men being there. But at the same time, it's difficult when people are in a group on a night out to say, only half of you can come in. Yeah. So there was this compromise whereby there would be a kind of unspoken ratio and my friend from Vancouver, who's older than me, said the last time that would have happened was about 1996. So the in Canada, they're 10 years to 15 years into the future yeah. from the way things are going and trends in society. And, uh, yeah, so th- there really was this time. I used to live opposite a lesbian bar in Stoke Newington. I think I went once. It was like I didn't know what I had. No. And I didn't know... I suppose until they started passing rules in the students' union to get rid of the general meeting, and I started to realize, oh my God, there's going to be this is such a crackdown on politics and political discussion. And I think that eventually, I started to realize that things generally politically were not going great. But one of the things that really did it, I think, was honestly partly Labour being in opposition, mm. certainly in unions. All I knew at the time was that trade unions were people um, or stru- structures that witch-hunted left-wing members of that union. Right. And it's to do with the Labour Party being in government and then not wanting opposition and criticism to Labour. And then when the Tories got in in 2010, the student movement kind of flipped in that they became much more, I suppose, for free education, but much more you know, militant against the government eventually. Um, it, but actually, there was a militant student movement, and then what it was was that things shifted because of that but it meant that people who espoused left-wing ideas mm. but didn't really mean them that were basically posturing liberals got elected and i just remember going i think the last conference a student conference i went to was 2012 and listening and finding that everyone who was on the stage just were speaking in managerial speak that was it and the organized left presence was smaller than usual and I just remember noticing that there was already the shift towards liberalism and presenting yourself a certain way, but in a, in a very defanged kind of toothless sense. And what it really was, was a shift towards charity models. It was the same in Students' Union, getting rid of meetings, 
having a trustee board that oversees the executive and can veto anything too radical that students want to do. It was really the same that, you know, within a couple of years, well, the people being elected in student unions were all speaking in, you know, third sector lingo. So there might have been a militant student movement for three months at the end of 2010, really November to January 2011. But after that, it was, it was honestly just like uh, this, this, you know, liberal hegemonic charity spiel just became in vogue and everybody started to operate like that. And while sections of the left didn't operate like that, Mali Boitier, you know, was very principled NUS president. She was very radical. The The point is that the whole of unions began to operate like that. And that was the expectations. And a whole host of people got elected who would say, yeah, we're for free education, but they would talk about it in a managerial way, as if they were working for a charity rather than being an activist or an organiser. And I just think that liberalism set in from that time onwards and it infected everything yeah we had a kind of jeremy corbyn-esque um bernie sanders-esque figure named jack layton in oh god when must have been 2000 oh sorry guys 2009 2008 maybe yeah and um and i remember i don't remember a lot about it but people were really hopeful and it was the first time the ndp was quite a rat it was a socialist or a social democratic party that um, came out of Saskatchewan and they were big in, in making sure that we had a universal health care system. They have like socialism very much in their constitution that they've removed that now. now they no longer have socialism in their constitution. As the Labour Party did. Yeah. Um, anyway, we had, and then we the NDP got into the official opposition in the federal parliament. And that was the first time that ever happened. And there was this orange wave and they took... Quebec, which was whoever takes Quebec generally does very well. And it was the first one of the first times that uh, um, Quebec didn't vote for the Bloc de Québécois, the separatist party. And it was all hopeful and great. And then he died of brain cancer Mm. two, three months (laughs) into being head of the official opposition or something crazy. And since then, the NDP which is supposed to be not our communist party, we have a communist party in Canada, but certainly our social democratic party, and certainly very aligned with labor, mm-hmm. um, stopped being socialist. Right. And the Overton window just changes. Yeah. You know? I would say, and this is a theory I have, that it became clear that because certain equalities had been won, things like gay marriage, things like... Um, even the anti-racist politics maybe became generalised in a particular way in 2014, that some nefarious, sinister forces saw this as, okay, well, I can latch onto that, and it's like a form of power if it's wielded in a particular way. So if I can say, oh, well, I'm a, you know, trans-disabled person, and therefore I am trying to have... I have more clout in this conversation, say. And that through the... Because of the internet... Politics just often became about having arguments on the internet. Well, everyone right now should go watch um, mine and Shay Wilhelm's um, presentation we did for the LGB Alliance that talked about the emergence of identitarianism on the internet. And that's what really happened. 
And it also had a lot to do with the linguistic turn in academia. But, but you know, when, in the SWP, we had like a prohibition on speaking about any party matters or anything to do with any United Fronts were involved with on social media. And incredibly, people actually stuck to that. So there wasn't this idea that you did politics through the internet. And in some respects, this was stupid in that, you know, the SWP would say, oh, let's keep selling our newspaper. It probably isn't relevant now in the way that... It, you know, it used to be now that we do have the internet and that's a place to spread ideas like never before. It's true that there were lots of, I don't want to say Luddites fully, but boomers and Gen Xs that just didn't really grasp the way that modern technology and the internet had changed things. Mm. No, not at all. And we're just like a lot of the members of the, sorry, a lot of the members of the hard left who, um, you know, were used to things like newspapers and firing and events were just completely caught off guard by how most young people became political, which was on the internet. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, so my theory about, I'll explain my theory about how I think that um, basically people that hadn't had social traction before suddenly saw they could have social traction through claiming certain identities was there was definitely a change, and and it's another university example, but that's where I was. But in 2008, I remember going to the Athletics Union dinner and the rugby team, oh, was it the rugby team? Was it the football team? It was the football team. Um, we date the netball team. We were the basketball team, so obviously half of us were dykes. But the football team would date the netball team, and they were doing chants to wind them up. And one of the chants was, the netball team are lesbians. The netball team are lesbians. They're not very creative, this lot, right? <laughs> and and they were doing other ones saying, like, the rugby team is gay. British people love their chants. Like, you go to, like, <laughs> North American, like, sporting events, and it's like... Everyone's great. Well done. Everyone's great. And then, like, British ones are like, your mom's a cunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in America, it's like, let's go Broncos. And here it's telling the ref that they're shit. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the C word, everyone. Well, and, uh, yeah, so basically, they were saying this. They were saying, oh, the rugby team are gay, da da da. Nothing happened. And I don't even think I reported it. I was just like, rolled my eyes. A year later, Maybe that summer there was a scandal where the president of Kings, I remember it was a, a conference I was at, held up a sign saying bring back slavery a, mm. as a joke, right? Hilarious joke. Hilarious joke. But this is also a guy who I was told put bacon on his Jewish colleague's desk as a joke. The real odious man. Well, none of those are jokes. It's like, where's well, the joke? It's just well, it's that racism's funny. Yeah, That's yeah. the joke. But it's like, this isn't, this doesn't work. Honestly, this idea that something is funny if it's racist is really pervasive. I remember it at school, but it's it's bizarre because, I mean, A, racism isn't funny, and B, it will be the most unsophisticated joke, and then all this guffawing, and I'm just like, how is it funny? It was because it's a put-down, right? It's like, haha, let's laugh at this group. Anyways, this guy was the president of King Students Union, to be clear. Anyway... He, thankfully, I mean, I think he had to resign and it was a it was a deal. And things started to move from then. Because I remember even going to kind of student trainings and just hearing the word gay used pejoratively constantly. It was by... such a thing, like, in, the, in that time. But, so, like... but these were, like, university graduates. And this was 2009. Yeah. And I was just very surprised by it all. Anyway, then things shifted, thankfully, and I'm glad... 
And I think that a lot of the Labour-created anti-discrimination laws came in, and I'm glad of those protections. And, you know, gay marriage arrived. I think it was 2012 it was voted for and it came here. It was put into um, law in 2013. And I then think, though, that, uh, that certain people, because of those shifts saw an opportunity to capitalise on identity in a disingenuous way. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe the measure of it's disingenuous isn't the point, but I just know that never before did I see identity being wielded. It was always otherwise, you know, people talk about anti-racism, people talk about anti-homophobia. It was never, I'm gay, so I'm right in this conversation because I'm gay and you're straight. And this seems to be the Trump card now. And it's and it's just such a degradation of debate and discussion and politics. And this is happening on the left. This isn't happening, you know, um, on the right. This is happening on the, the far left have adopted it. The centre ground has adopted it. It's very hard to find uh, f- to find people that are willing to unpick this minefield that we're in now. So this weird merging of identitarianism and liberal third sector charity think has replaced radical politics. By and large, on the centre left, the far left, everywhere. And then thank God we can stop talking about class. Yes. Yeah. And I think that was the start of the shift. I saw the shift really like, I saw like, yeah, shadows of it in 2012. But the real, you know, pro-trans, um, absolute decimation of the left. I mean, the SWP imploded because of a sexual scandal. Um, I think it's a, just a micro sect of many now. It was really 2014 for me when I started to see what the fuck is going on with the left. And I started to notice transgenderism becoming uh, normalised. We'll, we should do a podcast as well another time about our own peaking stories, but normalised and generalised in a way that was not just, look, be polite to these people, use their pronoun. Or like, you know what I mean? It's like the liberal narrative, but like, this man is actually a woman if he says so. Just yeah. madness. And that was when I started to have questions and start to turn to feminism. But this, it was because the left didn't have those answers. And the left became completely disorganised. And I just remember thinking, I mean, what's going on in politics? The Green Party had a bit of a upswing. There was for Rahman in East London, who's great. Um, I'll do a whole fucking podcast on my experience campaigning for him uh, another time. But yeah, the Labour Party, Ed Miliband, he was like diet Tory. I mean, I like Ed Miliband. He seems like a nice guy. But his policies were taken up by the Tories after they won. They weren't radical. And then... This is before Corbyn. But I really saw an absolute, and it was willing, degradation of the organised far left really from 2010 onwards. The other thing was anti-fascism, right? Today, this kind of anti-far performative nonsense. We always regarded anti-far as an absolute joke because there was an actual fascist movement then. It was the EDL and BNP. So we actually had to have a serious anti-fascist movement. And I remember when I was, love music, hate racism, national organiser, they're like the musical arm of the Unite Against Fascism organisation that would organise the anti-English Defence League 
uh, marches and the EDL was a was a really su- quite successful fascist street movement, honestly, mm. led by Tommy Robinson. And I remember that year, I think, yeah, it was 2009, they, uh, the BNP just got wiped out across mm. the country, basically. Yeah. And at that point, there was, and the EDL declined pretty soon after, there wasn't a reason anymore to have an anti-fascist movement in this country. Yeah. And that was when Unite Against Fascism became Stand Up to Racism. And it then left space for nutcases right. like Antifa to fill. Antifa were considered a joke. And I'll give an example. When Nick Griffin was invited to speak at the Oxford Union, not the real union, the debating union, so you can imagine the kind of people that invited him, we put on a coach there and went and protested. I think we managed to stop the talk for a certain amount of time and we can have another episode on why no platform should only be reserved for fascists. Anyway, Antifa turned up like, 12 of them or something and they just stood around in all you know black block uniform and they brought out a banner that just said cons <laughs> i got the c word twice on this one yeah and that was it i remember thinking what are they doing standing outside wh smith's with the word cons in a balaclava on. And I went over, like I found like a little one, and I was like, what are you doing? And she just was like, they had no explanation anyway. I then, think so many of them are cops too. In America, maybe. I think so many of them Not are here, not here. Because they're just nothing. Maybe, I mean, here, they're unfortunately much bigger. Anyway, uh, and it's the influence of America, it's because they've seen it on the fucking internet and then they want to replicate it in real life at feminist speakouts. Anyway, on the coach back, they they it had got really late and the trains weren't running. So we said to these Antifa morons, <laughs> you can come on our coach, it's fine. So obviously I thought this was an opportunity for a wind-up. I started saying to one of them, like, oh, I'm surprised that all uh you know, 25 of your members weren't here today. And he said, actually we've got 29 members. <laughs> I was like, wow, what a national achievement. And they were nobody, they were nothing and nobody. But it was these shifts left spaces and the space that was left, um, you know, for anti-fascists had anti-far filled it. The space that was left um, when there was no criticism for things like queer politics, okay, feminists could fill it. But also transgenderism were just allowed to run with that ball unchecked. Yeah, we should do our next episode all about transgenderism. So this is a short episode. This is really part yeah. one. But I just wanted to set the scene for those who weren't there. The left used to be normal. In fact, it was almost the left were too, you know, the idea that we wanted broad movements, A to B marches, that you could bring your kids on. The fact that we thought that even if someone was act- reactionary, that eventually they could change their ideas or that they didn't need to, to take part in strikes or radical politics. The idea that we wanted to have normal people. I remember this guy, Michael Bradley, who was on the CC of the SGBP. Maybe he still is. I don't know. He was chosen when they they were invited on daytime TV, basically. He was chosen to go on over a guy called Joseph Tunara, who was a bit upper middle class. Michael Bradley, or certainly in his voice and presentation, Michael Bradley was chose to go on and he wore a tracksuit. And he did that to try and signal to people who were unemployed watching TV at home, I'm one of you. I mean, he actually worked for the SWP and was on very little wages for that. But it, it this belief in people yeah. 
was there. And then it's really sad because, like, I see, like, young women on the internet who clearly are crying out for a political education. And this is not me saying, I'm so politically educated, let me look down on you people who aren't. But there, I get, like, questions. Like, I saw a woman ask, what do feminists think of Ayn Rand? <laughs> Bless her. She just doesn't know. And the thing about a political education that I think was present on the left is that it's more than just reading books, which, of course, is very important, and theory is really important, and you should read your books. But it's also trying things, failing things. Oh, my God, how do I get this leaflet printed out on time? How do we organize the coach to go to the thing? doing it badly, failing, trying again. I, I have to say that the political experience, political education in organising that I got from the SWP, which is a highly disciplined revolutionary organisation, or was, was. or was, was worth its weight in gold. Yeah. Because the first time you do a poster, you forget, to, you forget to put the fucking time on. The second time you do it, though, because of embarrassment, you'll definitely double-check that. I was organising conferences of, like, 300 people by the time I was 22, pretty much single-handedly because I just learned how to do it would yeah. organize meetings every single week would put up 300 you know 300 over a hundred posters a week around campus I'd do it on a particular night and I that would be the night I would choose a particular day strategically and everything that I thought to do with politics was all strategy I almost don't know what politics is apart from a strategy okay and analysis and things like, you know, principles and whether something's a principle or a tactic. There was none of this idea of breaking people down and trying to work out their tribe and, you know, nobble them for thinking the wrong thing. You just didn't consider people in this way. You were just doing politics and thinking about that. And I don't know, it just, it was, it was really, it was really and good for my development. It just doesn't exist anymore. And I see no, women doesn't. trying to do things like Zoom reading groups and different things but it's just so different now it's very different what is the feminist opinion on Anne Rand then because I know what the socialist one is but what is the feminist one I mean I'm sure she was very anti-feminist yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean I've, I've only read half of Atlas Shrugged when I was right 16 so I don't really know but mm. fucking people are so crazy with their anti-communism I like commented on that woman's thing and I was like oh go ahead read it but like you know be aware of who she is and someone was like you're a Stalinist who wants to prevent people from reading anti-communist books. What's wrong with anti-communist? Blah, 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 blah. Like, like, so desperate for the Stalinist folk devil, which it doesn't even fucking exist. Anyway, yeah. I should read Ayn Rand, probably, so I know what it's she not, said. It's not very good. That's what uh, I've heard. It's objectivism. Not... It's not objective. It's just bullshit. Isn't she doesn't go to think about, like, the Superman and, like, you know... That's what I remember is the Atlas Shrugged. Well, the it's the whole thing of like that the talented individual is held back by society. Yes, it's just Andrew Tate, but, you know, long ago. Yeah. Honestly. So anyway, so this is part one. And yeah, I hope we painted a clear picture that the left didn't used to be mad. Yeah. The far left were really sober to the degree that we were considered quite boring and kind of fuddy-duddies that didn't take. And a bit wholesome, isn't it? A bit wholesome. And, and the, like, loopy ideas that we didn't even, you know, give them their fair hearing and we just wanted to talk about Marx all the time and we just wanted to ferment strikes and, you know, it was always us that wanted to do things like, yeah, Black History Month and LGB History Month, but 
we weren't bonkers then. No. We, and we didn't say, oh, it's identity politics also. We never said that. Mm-hmm. I never heard, oh, the Black Students Campaign is uh, identity politics. There wasn't this kind of... Well, you were also in a Trotskyist organisation. There was definitely people from the other side... Oh, really? Okay. ...saying that kind of thing about, like, gay marriage in the 90s. And... Yes, okay, that's true. Anyway, we'll do part two soon. And I hope everyone enjoys the festive season. There you go. See, I am a normie. I am a normal socialist. Yes, enjoy the festive season. Happy Hanukkah, happy Christmas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.